One of the lenses I want to suggest would be to consider the gospel through the lens of initiation. We feel responsible to have a kind of 30-minute conversation that ends with the sitcom making sense. Uh, no. Sometimes the vision can cause you to stop. The vision doesn't drive you, the vision can actually constrain you. You just think, well, gosh, that's way bigger than I am. That's way bigger than my skills. If your spiritual life does not have a regular dose of adventure to it, it's not going to sustain the masculine soul. Hey, guys, this is Sam. And Blaine. You've probably missed my dulcet tones over the weekend, but don't worry, I'm back. You know, we say this at the beginning of every episode, but we have a phenomenal episode for you this week. I actually think that the degree to which what you're about to hear is going to fundamentally change some categories for you will be worth the hour <laughs> that it takes to listen to it. A little warning, this one does contain some mature themes, so if your kids are in the car, might want to just skip this one, listen to it later. We're going to be talking with Michael Cusick, who literally wrote the book on the soul, sexuality, and addiction. He also has taught and lectured at numerous seminaries, um, most recently here in Denver. Michael is a counselor, and he also runs a ministry that specializes in restoration after sexual addiction called Restoring the Soul. So we're going to give you a second to rush over to your stereo and hit the pause button, and then we are going to jump back into what this podcast is. This episode is about sex, sexuality, identity, addiction, and reframing desire. And some root causes under all of that. Truthfully, I was a little bit hesitant to step into this podcast because there's some language that the church uses and some messages that the church typically offers that I have just, I'm tired of hearing. And I don't think they're actually very helpful. This is not that. This is phenomenal. And I got more and more excited as the episode went on. And you'll hear some of that as I stopped thinking about the next question and just listened. Hope you guys enjoy it. Michael, thanks for coming on the podcast. Yeah, really excited for our conversation today. I know it's one that people are going to see the title and they're going to make some assumptions. And I just am kind of excited to maybe disrupt some of those and explore some categories that hit home for a lot of people. I'm excited to be here. And per our contract, I'm, I'm hoping you guys honor that. The title will be How to Stop Masturbating in Three Easy Steps. Yes, yes, definitely. Uh-huh. Yeah, it'll be in the uh, copy somewhere. That's actually a perfect segue to the first thing that I actually <laughs> wanted to ask you relative to masturbating in three easy steps of, you know, you've worked in the area of addressing sexuality, restoring the human soul, issues of deep brokenness for a long time. And at this point, if you could just point to two or three things that are sort of popular in the field but do not work. Core assumptions that are damaging, especially men who are looking to take initiative in restoring their own sexuality. What would you just say, don't try this? Yeah, great question. I'll actually give you four when you said two or three. And the first thing is I, I want to honor and support any man who's taking any initiative with his sexuality because we know that all sexuality is broken. 
it's not just people that are, quote, addicted to sex or porn or people that have sexual trauma. All sexuality is broken. And, and to make movement toward that is, is really an honorable and strong thing. However, what I've experienced is that most guys, you even talk about sexuality, and especially guys in their teens and 20s and 30s, and they just kind of roll their eyes like, oh, man, you're not going to talk to me about that, are you? And what they're expecting is typically one of four things. Number one, get accountability, right? And I never heard the word accountability until about 1995 when the first Promise Keepers weekend came about. And because Bill McCartney was the founder of that, the word accountability was like something that an athlete would do. And we need to be accountable in the terms, if we don't pay our mortgage or if we eat poorly, we'll be accountable in terms of consequence. But accountability has become almost like this new spiritual discipline that's been asserted into the Bible. And it ultimately fails because we're self-deceptive. Gerald May said in uh, his book, Addiction and Grace, that out of the five characteristics of addiction, self-deception is the chief characteristic of addictions. That's a a biblical idea as well, even though that book was a secular book. And we self-deceive ourselves, and then we deceive others. And therefore, accountability doesn't work because we lie. And I talk about, if I can plug my book, Surfing for God, three levels of accountability. Two are harmful. One is helpful. I think what most guys experience is cop accountability. And that's this idea that I want to get a hold of my compulsive behavior. So I'm going to set up a relationship where you're the cop and you've got your ticket book. And if I speed in the zones that tell me what the limits are, if I break those limits, then you're going to write me a ticket. And usually that looks like shame. And usually that looks like, well, if I know that I'm going to feel ashamed, then I won't do this. And, and that's a horrible way to be motivated in the Christian life. That doesn't foster love. It doesn't foster intimacy. It certainly doesn't foster spiritual rest. And really, it leads to hiding and hiddenness and performance. So cop accountability only should happen in the most extreme conditions where, as brothers, we just need to get in some dude's face. We've maybe known a guy who is sleeping around with somebody else's wife, and you want to be compassionate with him, but you've got to go, dude, not okay. That's cop accountability, but it doesn't work beyond that. There's coach accountability, and that's where you get the whistle and the clipboard, and you're trying to inspire and help somebody to kind of improve their performance problem with that is it's still external. It doesn't bring inner transformation or restoration of the heart. And it's exhausting because it puts us on this performance treadmill of I've got to do more, I've got to do more. And it leaves you with this core lie or agreement that deep down inside, I'm really not okay. Deep down inside, there's really something wrong with me unless mm, I'm performing. Totally. The totally. Third, third kind of accountability is cardiologist accountability. And this, of course, lines up with what you guys do and the centrality of the heart. And the the cardiologist uh, accountability is based on the idea that we've already had a heart transplant. We have a new heart. We have a, a good heart. Therefore, fellowship, friendship, adventure, connecting, conversation is all about promoting the welfare and the well-being and the wholeness of heart. And, you know, there's a lot of talk, even in secular culture, Brene Brown, other people are talking about wholeheartedness instead of necessarily brokenheartedness to freedom. And as I talk about wholeheartedness, I like to say that if the Pharisees, when they came to Jesus and said, the first and greatest commandment is to love God wholeheartedly, we think we can do that somehow through this performance. And if I perform, whether it's with sexual stuff or not, then I'll love God. But you can't 
love anything or anyone wholehearted if you don't have a whole heart. So all these false ways of trying to initiate change are really a way to become whole without having to be vulnerable, without having to be dependent on another uh, in a healthy way, and ultimately without having to trust God. So the whole accountability thing, man, I, I, I try to shut that down right away and help people understand the questions to ask and the categories to have in their mind to go below the surface where the tip of the iceberg is the behavior or the sin. And Proverbs 20 tells us the purposes of our hearts are deep waters, and so we need to enter into that. Just real briefly, and then I'll take a breath and let you guys comment. The other things are, first of all, beyond accountability, surely my sex drive is too high. I'm just too horny. I'm just, I need to dial it down. And therefore, we try to suppress our sexual desires. And this has been the gospel of sexual purity for three or four decades now, ever since I became a Christian, and especially since certain books have come out that just tell people to get accountability, to bounce your eyes, that kind of thing. And those are good skills, but they do absolutely nothing to bring about change. And, and you guys probably know the quote from Lewis who said that it's not that our desires are too strong, it's that they're too weak. And most of us are like the kid in the mud puddle, playing around, not knowing that there's such a thing as the holiday at sea. And Bonhoeffer said that the pursuit of purity is not about suppressing our desire or our lust, but about reorienting our life to a larger goal. So we need to debunk that myth. And then the final one is that some kind of Christian activity or Christian engagement, whether it's reading my Bible, praying more, or doing Christian service, if I'm just more devoted, then somehow I'll reach a place or a platform or a pinnacle where this just won't be a struggle in my life anymore. And all of this is built off the assumption that my brokenness is a barrier to the life that God has for me and to the life interpersonally on the horizontal level that I long for. And, and of course, the gospel and the way of the cross is that our brokenness is not a barrier. It's a bridge to the life that we long for when we simply bring it into the light. <laughs> okay. The Just, number of categories. <laughs> oh, so good. So good. So many things that I immediately want to chase down, but I almost need to go back to square one, where you began with the assumption all sexuality is broken. What do you mean by that? Great question. First of all, if we were to do a survey of 1,000 of your listeners, what's the first thing that comes to mind when you hear the word sexuality? People would respond, I, I would bet you a $100 gift card to REI that people would say genitals or some sexual act. And the scriptures never primarily talk about sexuality in terms of genital sexuality. Some sociologists make a distinction between genital sexuality and social sexuality. And the Catholics have actually written deeply and profoundly about this. Pope John Paul II has a tome, uh, multiple volumes of the theology of the body and the person in the States in English that has done the most work around that, literally studying in Rome is Christopher West, who has written a number of books, most recently, Fill These Hungry Hearts, all about sexuality and longing. But Genesis 126 and 127 is where we go. And it says, in the plurality of the Trinity, let us make man in our image. And if you just stop there, it's this God who introduces through the usness, the plurality of that pronoun, that there is relationship, that there's a dynamic interactiveness. It's not just God by himself. And then he says he's going to create. He's going to bring something forth. And then after the comet, it says, so let us make male and female. 
And so there's two genders. There's polar opposites in some regard. There's the yin and the yang. There's the he and the she. And only when those two are in their fullness brought together to becoming one can God be revealed more fully and completely. And then it's a baby for a married couple or whether it's other kinds of relational fruit for a single person, in gender, something is brought forth and created. And that's what sexuality is. And I like to think of the word erotic, which originates in the the Greek word eros, which is not a word in the Bible. It's less about genitals and the act of sex. And it's more about, as the Greeks used to think about, a life force or energy that is in us to become awake, alive, and to create and to bring forth life. And that's interestingly contrasted with eros, which is about this life force, versus thanatos, which is a force of death. It's, it's the word from where we get euthanasia, a good death. And uh, eros is contrasted with death. And, and there's a lot of ways that our sexuality that's meant to be this life force and this strength that comes up and out of us has really become more a force of death and an energy of death and destruction than it has been of life. It's really good. You know, that etymology is speaking Blaine's love language right there. That is. I love that stuff. I just it's, made it up, actually. <laughs> I don't know if it's true. No, I, I read that somewhere, so it's a real deal. It's highly accurate. It's just, you remind me of a story of, first, it was orientation weekend at college, and kind of halfway through, sort of trying to give you some perspective on dorm life, they had a men and women's gathering with the RD and with some of the RAs. And it was just such a classic moment where the guys are all sitting around and the RD, I think, sort of wisely began the conversation by going, so we asked all of you men to come into a room. What do you think we're going to talk about? And those guys who had courage to say the obvious, it was like, sex, sexuality, living in dorms near women. But the conversation around even maleness and sexuality was so linked to what we conventionally think of as sexual acts. And the, ex- right. the expansion that you're gesturing towards is feels like a total, almost reorientation of what it means to be a sexual being insofar as being a life-giving being. And I feel like what might expand or inform that for me would be if you could explain a little more what you mean you write sometimes, and you write in your book, Surfing for God, that sexuality is a pathway to know God. I think that most guys who view their sexuality as some sort of issue would say, no way. My sexuality is one of the most difficult hindrances in my life. How can it be that sexuality in concept is a path to know God? How would you explain that? Oh, wow. This is where I would I would love it if we had a semester to unpack this every week. I, I, I taught human sexuality at Denver Seminary, and for five years I taught addictions there. And my passion is to, is to look at how our brokenness actually becomes a pathway to growth in our relationship with Jesus, particularly through sexuality and compulsion. I always tell counselors, and you know, I, I trained under Dan, who is your friend and your dad's friend. And when Dan was still here in Colorado, we spent a fair amount of time together. And he always used to say, surprise, that he makes bombastic statements. Uh, And for anybody listening, I'm referring to Dr. Dan Allender. But he would say, like, if you simply understand blank, 
then you can understand everything. You know, for example, if you simply understand story, then you can understand everything. And, and my statement like that is, if you understand sexuality, and if you understand compulsion and an addiction, you can understand everything. That's the human heart right there. Addiction and compulsion is grasping for and, and attaching to in an unhealthy way, what the Bible calls a snare, what we call an addiction, something that we, we believe will be life-giving. And sexuality is the impulse and the movement and the energy behind that to find a sense of completeness in other. And ultimately, that other would be a capital O, where we are meant to come up and out of ourselves. And, you know, as I say that phrase, and guys are listening, listen to how the language sounds so sexual, even with some of our euphemisms, that we are designed to come up and out of ourselves. And not just to spill seed on the ground, but to engage, to enter, to penetrate in a way where life is generated. And that's so much more than the creation and conception of a baby. But this is all to say that communion is the very first idea of how sexuality is far more than a metaphor or a symbol, but an ontological existential reality for our connection with God. One of the most baffling things for me after being a Christian 35 years is still, what does it mean to be the bride of Christ <laughs> for me as a guy? And yet, I can actually say I've gotten glimpses of that. I've had glimpses of tenderness. I've had glimpses of learning how to receive. I've had glimpses of being poured into from the Father, from Jesus, from the Holy Spirit that have literally conceived something new in me. So when David says in Psalm 139, I knit you together in your mother's womb, or I, you were conceived in your mother's womb because of my creation, that there's constantly something being conceived in us as our broken life bumps up against the presence and the reality of God. And, and I think it's in First Peter that the metaphor of an imperishable seed has been planted in us. And our job in our Christian life is to nurture that, but also to plant seeds in others so that life would be nurtured. So communion is the biggest thing. Union for the Christian. I read one of the blogs recently that came from Ransomed Heart and it was all about the five agreements that millennials are believing. And, you know, I don't know what's the top five, but I, I was just on a college campus recently. And most of the places I speak are at Christian college campuses. And I think there's two lies around sexuality. One is that this is as good as it gets. It's the sense of settling. Thomas Burton said that the greatest temptation in the Christian life is to settle for too little. And I think especially kids that are in college right now, fumbling all over themselves with trying to get enough accountability or trying to suppress their desires or to be more devoted, and it's not working. They become more and more resentful of the Christian life, and they just conclude, well, this is as good as it's going to get. I have to live saved for the next however many decades I live, and I'll try to be a good person. And that's despairing. Who wants to be a Christian for that? That was my life for the you know first probably 14 years of being a Christian, and I came to the point where I said, Jesus, my sexuality is so broken, and I'm so addicted and so compulsive, and man, I've memorized chunks of the New Testament, and I've gone to conferences. If this is what being a Christian is, I don't want to be one. <laughs> and that was the first time in my life I was actually that gut-level honest with God. 
And of course, he began to push me into deeper waters and to show me what the Christian life really was about. So this is as good as it gets. Line number one. Number two is that my sexual sin separates me from God. And I think this is a very post-Enlightenment, modernist idea, uh, and I would argue post-Reformation, that a Christian can be separated from God. But I hear again and again and again, you know, I masturbated, I looked at porn, so man, God is just disappointed with me, frustrated with me, disgusting. I'm not a good return on his investment. And if we could just begin to see that that union with God and that communion with God is not something we ever need to acquire or work up or abstain from sexual sin for a certain amount of time, that then we can have that. It's always there, and it's something we fall into and fall back on. And I think that knowledge alone can begin to free us. Because the question I often ask people that they're shocked by, but it seems like such a basic question, if you never overcame your sexual sin, how would God feel about you? And how would you feel about yourself? And you can see where that would go. Well, God would be disappointed. That's not what the gospel says. How would you feel about yourself? Uh, I'd hate myself, or I'd, I'd have to keep beating the crap out of myself. And wow, that sounds pretty despairing as well. And so sexuality, apart from this union and communion idea, becomes the greatest window into our own soul and our own agreements and false beliefs about God. We really believe that God is impressed with our performance. We really believe that God's mood toward us and his posture toward us and his presence with us is really dependent on what we do. And again, that was my spiritual reality for 14, 16, 18 years. And I can also say that today, because my sexual story is one of sexual abuse, age four, porn addiction, starting at age eight, became a Christian at 16. Okay, now I'm a Christian. Jesus is going to take this out of my life. And it only got worse because it went underground. And then three years into my marriage, it all blew up when I was paying for sex with prostitutes and at massage parlors. And I was in as deep as anybody can get. And it was through that season and through that brokenness and through the sexual struggle that I really realized that the the Christian faith I had built my life upon was really kind of a sham. It was cognitive. It was intellectual. And if you were to ask me today, when did I become a Christian? I would probably just to mess with you, I'd say either 1980, when I prayed the prayer to receive Jesus 10 times, or in 1994, when my life blew apart and I came to know his love. And you know what the antidote to sexual sin is? It's love. If we would only trust love and to learn to be present to love and let love be present in us. And I'm not talking about Oprah mystical love. I'm talking about the incarnated, resurrected Jesus. If we could only trust love, all of our addictions and compulsions would just evaporate. So, so much goodness in there. I'm thinking that if I were listening to this, I would be hopeful and surprised because as a listener to this topic, I am expecting for the symptomatic stuff, for the accountability conversation, the let's address the tip of the iceberg rather than the underlying roots. And obviously the hopefulness of, wow, like what if this is something deeper and there's something there that I have value regardless of how the story plays out. I have so many stories of friends that that feels like, it's the white knuckle Christianity. I have so many experiences where I was at a wedding 
of a friend who had succeeded, I say in quotes, with the Christian goal of suppression. Like just try to keep the reins tight. You got to make it to your wedding night as a virgin and that's your value. And that was actually spoken publicly at the wedding. Like these people have achieved this and and yet their wedding night was miserable because there has been this category of sexuality as something to stuff, to take your pillow and like kind of suffocate and also was something so wrapped up in their value that what about the day after the wedding? What about when they're no longer this prize pony almost that sexuality was as damaged for them in a twisted way that they wouldn't have anticipated by being this thing that was forbidden and you don't go there and you don't talk about it and you you just kind of keep that on a tight leash. That feels like another avenue that that sexuality is assaulted from the Christian perspective. Yeah, you're both putting words to, and Sam, you're putting words to so many people's experience. And not just about sex, but really about any issue or obstacle in our life, anything that we can't overcome. You know, you're putting words to Romans 7, and I think for the average guy, the most present thing that they're aware of is sexuality, but we could apply that to any issue, right? You know, overeating, anger, gambling, shopping, buying stuff on iTunes or Amazon that you really can't afford and don't need, but you can't stop. And so I love the image of the pillow. You know, if I just if I just suffocate it, it'll go away. But what happens is that that actually arouses more desire because when ultimately when we feed the soul or our heart, we starve our addictive compulsive behaviors. And we can, as Peterson says in Galatians 5 in the message, He says that we're able to marshal and direct our energies and passions wisely. And that only happens as a result of something happening inside as a result of rest and freedom. And I love how, you know, my my life has been so blessed by Ransomed Heart. And you guys have been all about freedom. And you guys are one of the few people that are talking about freedom in a way that I think is more than just getting free from bad stuff. It's always important to talk about freedom as a coin with two sides. Indeed, we need to get free from the things that choke the life out of our heart and soul because they're they're bondage and they, they keep us from receiving. But then there's a freedom toward something. And my approach, and I get a lot of crap for this, and I've had people write me and call me and in the community, they say that you know our ministry is not about helping people get sober. And I go, well, of course we are, but that's not the first step. The first step is actually to help people discover the freedom that exists about a human soul in Christ, period. And that is that we're not under the law. The whole idea of the book of Galatians is that we do not have to not sin in order for God to love us, want us, and to be acceptable to him. And when we begin to understand that just a micron into our our chest and our soul and not just our mind, we begin to go, I actually want God now more than I want sin. And so it's it's Dallas Willard's idea of indirection, the idea that we, we don't focus on not sinning, we focus on out in front of us, who do we want to become? I think Morgan recently 
took my interview with Dallas Willard and played it on the Good Soil podcast. And one of the things he said in there, because I I re-listened to it for the first time in, in seven years, Willard said, if you try to keep the commands, you'll fail. But if you try to become the kind of person that keeps the commands, you will succeed. And there's a lot of guys that are trying not to sin sexually versus what does it mean to become the kind of man, wholehearted, unencumbered from shame, unencumbered from the agreements and the lies about my masculinity and about what it means to be in relationship with a woman, disentangled from the lies about God. As I become that person, the man that I was created to be, then evil will not look attractive. And of course, men will always respond to nakedness because at a neurological level, we were created for that. But the demand and that incessant neurochemical drive no longer takes over because there's actually something solid that has come together inside of us. I just wonder, personally, if I will ever stop being surprised that any kind of development and any kind of change originates in the human soul. As you were just talking about, this is about becoming, uh, this is about even restoring your own heart. It does make me think of some of the things that you've written. And one of the first things that's necessary for a man, any kind of addiction, in this case, sexual addiction, is they actually have to become a student of their own heart. And they actually have to learn. I thought it was so interesting that one of the places that you start is desire. You actually have to get acquainted with the desires of your own heart. Of the points of entry, why is that one so important? Why is learning the desires of your heart so near the top? With addiction, it's twofold. Number one, desire is the engine that drives the human heart. And desire is ultimately that energy, that longing, that yearning inside of us for something up and outside of ourselves. And ultimately, for God. You know, that's why G.K. Chesterton said the man knocking on the brothel door is knocking for God. And people wonder why I called my book, you know, Surfing. Am I a surfer? No. But I, I heard Chesterton's quote and I said, well, if that's true, and it is, then the guy surfing the internet for porn or the guy hooking up on Tinder is hooking up or surfing for God. And I have been perplexed in my own life about my own desires and longings because of my own early abuse and trauma, I had to learn to dissociate the impact of the trauma. There's a fight, flight, and freeze response. That's one direction people go with trauma. And I had that freeze response. My heart became numb. But other than my heart, my my neurobiology literally became incapable of feeling. I remember when I was engaged to my wife, we had a very fast courtship and engagement because we were coming out here to Colorado to go to graduate school in 90. And she said to me, you're the most disconnected person from your body that I have ever met or known. And I looked at her like, what? You know, I've got all my hands and fingers. What are you talking about? And I would just eat badly and stay up late and get up early and go without sleep. And I didn't know what I felt. And I had headaches and just all kinds of things. And and that was the result of trauma. And so when men are asked the question, well, what do you desire? What do you long for? Part of why I think men are so disconnected is not because of a stereotype of women feel and men don't, but because men tend to carry the trauma in their bodies 
more often through numbness and frozen emotions and shutting down, and that that part of them is no longer accessible. And so I have to do a lot of work with the folks that I work with to help them just begin to get in touch with their body so they can get in touch with their desires. If you ask a woman, what do you feel? She'll be able to identify that quickly. If you ask many men, what do you feel? They'll say, I don't know. You know, other than hungry, angry, and horny, I don't know. And I know that's a caricature, but that was me. But if you say to that same man, I want you to close your eyes, take three deep breaths, and scan from the top of your head down to the bottom of your toes with your mind's eye, and pay attention to or notice something in your body. Let them do that. I'll ask, what do you notice? And they'll go, oh, well, that's easy. I've got this knot in the center of my chest that's just always there. Or I've got these butterflies in my gut or, you know, my balls are, are like hurting right now. Okay, well, tell me about that. And they may or may not comment on that. And I'll say, if you could take a cartoon bubble, like one of those little Sunday funnies call outs and have it come out of that knot in your chest or out of those butterflies in your stomach, what would it say? Oh, that's easy. I'm anxious or I'm scared shitless or I'm just so angry right now. And I think that's oftentimes a doorway into desire. But if we can't name and own our desires, we'll never be able to actually move toward what we really want and what we're really created for. Because most of us just just are aware of our casual desires. I want a new car. Uh, I just, <laughs> when I... This is the first time I'll talk publicly about this, uh, but I, I just got a new MacBook because my old one just went kaput. And while I was in the store, I had a brand new Patagonia black down sweater. It was a perfect coat and somebody stole it. And we even checked on the security camera and someone walked out with my coat. And I just went on and on and on. I couldn't let go of it. Like, come on, Lord, really? I mean, that, that coat was perfect. And I can settle for, well, if my coat were still there, then life would be good. But that's not life with a capital L, because the hunger, the desire, the connection for life goes much deeper for that than something that I can arrange for. And ultimately, we need to become aware of the desires that are deeper and beyond what we can arrange for or bring about. And that's what we're trying to find. And that's what we're searching for in sexual compulsion when we can't bring it about because it depends on another. And then suddenly pornography gives us the illusion that we're connected to another, but we're really not. So it becomes this insidious, malevolent object that we can get hooked to so quickly. I honestly was just listening and I had, oh, this piece that you mentioned Morgan earlier, which brought to mind this this saying that he's said in the past, which is kind of uh, aligning with what you're talking about now. He says that in his marriage, he's found that sex is rarely actually about sex and money is rarely about money. That The issues behind them aren't actually very easy to see and it feels like it's about the thing that's going on. It sure feels that way in most conversations with guys. Like you've hinted about this and talked about this, this whole piece of identity, this whole piece of like, I am this broken person because of this thing. It feels so hopeful. I had a conversation recently with a guy who's, it wasn't pornography, it was a substance and they are having a difficult time viewing themselves anything other than defined by that substance. I, if you could just go around with like a 
card and hand it out and you're like, this actually isn't about sex. And that's really hopeful. I think people would first be like, what do you mean it's not about sex? Of course it's about sex. Like I, I feel powerful. I feel aroused. I, I feel loved, cared for. You know, my wife was harsh to me today and this is a safe place. It's a hopeful thing to say that these things that are trying to falsely be our identity, these things that we're like pulling towards aren't actually the actual issue that they are these aspects of our heart, this longing for God, this, this viewing of ourselves. When you have someone sitting across from you, what do you, I mean, because you, you literally have to lead some of these guys by the nose to talk about the anxiety they're feeling. What do you do to get them to maybe come to some terms with the deeper desires there? Good question. And I'm going to take a minute to think about that. And, and as I take a minute to think about that, that's actually part of the answer. Coming off this crazy schedule that I've had, which is atypical for me, and I try to be very intentional not to drive, 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 and live in a way where my soul can't be sustained, I am coming off this crazy moment. And yesterday, I, uh, without realizing it, had been gone from Sunday night, got in at 11 o'clock Wednesday night, and I looked at my schedule for the next day, and I was to give a two-hour lecture presentation to the counseling department at Colorado Christian University, and not students, but graduates who were master's degree counselors, counseling students. And, you know, this is a wheelhouse I'm really comfortable with, but my schedule got behind the day of that talk and I'm late. And so I start texting the director on the way there. I'm so sorry. And shame starts to come over me and I'm beating myself up. And why don't I, you know, manage my schedule better and then there's no parking, and I'm at the bottom of a hill carrying a box of my books and a heavy other stuff, and I'm just, like, not in a good place. And I get in front of the students, and there's, like, 18 of them, and I start to talk, and I realize I can't do this from this place. And so I said, let's pause a moment. I want to I start over. And, you know, there were no microphones or anything, and I, I went and I got a chair. So me standing in front and kind of pacing, which is what I do. And I sat in the chair and I said, I, I want to model something for you. I can't talk to you right now from a place that's grounded and centered in me if I don't sit here in silence for two to three minutes. And I want you to join me. And they all looked at me with like these big eyes like, oh, uh, okay. And I, I just instructed them to kind of take three breaths with each breath, hold it in for three seconds. So the carbon dioxide builds up and then slowly exhale like you're blowing through a straw. They all did it with me. At the end of three minutes, I felt peace and calm. And I stood up now with a strength and with a sense of centeredness that I still did my ADD kind of thing. But I was speaking and operating and connecting to a very different place. So to the average guy who thinks that he's broken and that is his identity, more information and insight and cognitive knowledge is not going to change that. What that man needs is encounter, experience, and he needs to be able to shut off. And I'm not talking about going out to the woods and backpacking. There's a place for that. And some people's spirituality is fostered that way. I mean, Psalm 4610, be still and know that I'm God. And I like to say this for shock value to some guy, and I'll say, what's the hardest command in the Bible for you to obey? And if they're struggling with porn or sex or a substance, they'll always say something like, 
you know, do, avoid sexual immorality or, uh, you know, do not lust. And I'll say, I think the hardest command in the Bible for you to obey, because I know it is for me, is Psalm 4610, be still and know that I'm God. And if we keep moving, if we keep spinning, if we keep running on the hamster wheel of our life, it keeps both the desire at bay and it keeps the brokenness like a beach ball stuffed under the water until we somehow can't manage it anymore. And then it shoots up with great ferocity. So here's the specific answer to how I help men in that area. In my own story, I had to light a candle and I grew up Roman Catholic, was baptized and confirmed believed nothing for four years and came to Jesus when I was 16. Several months before my marriage blew up and my addiction and sin was exposed, I was in downtown Denver and I would do this ritual of circling around the block where these adult video arcades were and you could pick up prostitutes or have gay sex or buy drugs or whatever you wanted. And I would go into that place acting out in this darkness and I couldn't not do it and I hated it, but I found myself there again one night and I parked and I started to walk toward the front door and I can only say it was the Holy Spirit. I turned left instead of right. And I walked a block toward the Cathedral of the Immaculate Conception in downtown Denver. And Pope John Paul had, had just given a mass there for World Youth Day. I walked up the stairs, these giant oak doors. I walk in and place is utterly empty except for an elderly janitor at the front. It's just echoing. And I see these candles off to the right. The Catholics will light as a kind of prayer. And again, I'm, I'm not consciously thinking about this. I just felt like I was being drawn. And I took one of the long matches and I went to light the candle. And before I did, I just said to God, I want more. I want more. I want more. I can't say that I teared up or levitated, or had, you know, this fresh fall of the Holy Spirit upon me, I felt like a little something was taken off my shoulders. But then I went and I sat down, and I write poetry, and not a lot of people know that, but the one poem I've shared publicly is in Surfing for God, and I, I wrote down these words, and this is the answer to the question. In my audacious wandering, I presumed another sunrise, and exhumed a life of ancient lies, and buried all my dreams, but lately, I've been pondering and seeing with my blind eyes the light that I'm defined by, and it's brighter than it seems. And the first thing that I would say to a man right now, the light inside of you is the strongest, deepest part of who you are. You think that right now all you want is porn or an orgasm or this woman's attention and invitation, and yet what you really want is life and goodness and blessing and joy and self-respect and integration. And so what I do with men whenever they're in my office, and I just did this this morning with a missionary who's here, as we spoke about his brokenness at the beginning of our session, we light a candle with three wicks. And uh, the first wick is to say, Jesus is present. And as the old Jews used to say, bidden or unbidden, God is present. And so we, we physically, symbolically say Jesus is present. Second week, because of Jesus and his light in us, we are not defined by our darkness. We're not defined by our brokenness. And then thirdly, the third wick is we could say Father, Son, or Holy Spirit, but I, I just tend to say this is for the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of God in us, who is at work. And Psalm 23, 3 
restoring our soul and guiding us in paths of righteousness. And that guiding part is that he's ahead of us. He's already making a way. He's already made provision, and he's given us the promise and the ontological reality that we are not defined by our darkness, but by this light within. And so the physical need to re-symbol, the physical need to do something physical, and I have one more thing to say, but I'll let you respond because it looks like you moved toward the mic. Oh, I was simply going to just jump in in that context of, I love on the one hand, and you might have been about to comment on this, but how material it is, like the points of entry into being acquainted with your own heart can be just these, I love your language of symbol, these shifts of core images and core language with which we're understanding our own heart, as in the candle, as in the flame. I think also this returns to a point you were making earlier in our most recent monologue that blew everybody's mind again, was that it reminded me of, you know, conversations that I'll have. We do have the opportunity to connect with young guys and what we do, but the language that, you know, one guy recently, when we were simply talking about, it wasn't about sexuality, it was uh, what should he be doing with his time? What does he even want? Does he even want a life with God? And it was so great because what he was able to name in the conversation were just the words, I don't know what I want, and beginning to like air that ambivalence that I think that most honest people would to some degree identify with. Like, yep, there are many places where I am not intimately connected to the heart God has set within me. I don't know what I want. Like all of a sudden it becomes visible in like, I get frustrated that God seems distant. And then suddenly this desire Uh, that he would be present and I would know him becomes exposed. Or I get really frustrated that my hopes even in work or hobby or something that I love get totally sidelined. And all of a sudden, this other desire to be seen in an area of excellence becomes visible. And I think that in that conversation, and as I'm personally reflecting into guys listening, just that experience of, wow, I'm hearing a conversation that just says, I have a heart. It has deep desires. I don't know many of the things that my heart wants is actually just a really good sort of point one of, okay, well then where is your heart becoming visible to you? And you actually know, as you were just saying, that your heart wants these core things like union with God. And then what what does it look like to begin pressing deeper into what you call developing desire? So this might not lead to the point that you were about to continue with, I would just love it if you would take a moment and you talk about this concept you said at the very beginning of our desires are not too much. They are, in fact, too weak. And in this language of understanding our heart and needing our desires to be stronger, how does a man go about developing his desires and making them, in fact, stronger? Yeah, man, this is. I wish we had like three more hours to talk about this because what you guys are doing is you're having conversations about the things that we rarely talk about, but desperately want to talk about. But more than that, in what you all do at Ransomed Heart, and what I try to do is to give people language for their soul. And we desperately need that language. And hopefully this is not a tangent. Hopefully this will connect with somebody. I have a precious daughter. She's 15 years old. We adopted her from China when she was one year old. 
And she speaks like three words of Mandarin Chinese today that, you know, when we're at a Chinese restaurant, ni hao, hello, and xie xie, thank you. But she doesn't speak Chinese, right? And so a man will say, well, the language of the heart is like speaking Cantonese or Mandarin. And, you know, I don't know what it's all about. And I'll say to men, well, here's my daughter's reality. She doesn't speak Chinese, but it's actually her native tongue. And the language of the heart and the language of the soul is the native tongue for every person ever made in the image of God. It doesn't matter if you're born in Soweto or in the Bible Belt. There is a language of the soul And as your dad has written in a number of different places, quoting Simone Weil, that only beauty and affliction pierce the human heart. And so until you've suffered or failed or been utterly swept up in something glorious and paid attention to its impact on your heart, only then will you begin to learn this native tongue. And I think it's one of the most beautiful and underutilized elements of evangelism You know, we just don't think in these terms. And so the native tongue is something I absolutely assume as opposed to trying to teach guys Chinese with the idea that they have no capacity for that language. It's something natural. And there's been research done that people that grow up in a language where their parents spoke it in the household or something, they forget it and then they come back to it in college or something, that the neural pathways are actually there. And that's a metaphor for what's true. Beyond that, I would say to help them begin to develop and grow in this language is to take advantage of all kinds of resources like books, podcasts, videos. You know, Ransom Heart is all about that. Restoring the soul. Our ministry does that. But to begin to notice how all through the scriptures there is this telling and retelling and illustrating of the language of the heart specifically around desire. And this goes way, way back. But Dan Allender studied at Westminster Theological Seminary for his MDiv, and there was a mentor there who at the time was probably one of the foremost Old Testament scholars in the world, Raymond Dillard. And Larry Crabb and Dan, when they were working together way back at Grace Seminary, had Ray Dillard look through their materials and their books. And when Inside Out came out, which blew us away, and that's the book that kind of saved my life, they gave that book to Dr. Dillard and said, you're an Old Testament scholar. Is this idea of longings and thirst really in the Bible? Is this a legitimate category or are we just psychologizing this? And he came back and he said, all 66 books of the Bible have explicit or implicit emphasis and content about desire and thirst and hunger and longing. And I remember While I was addicted to prostitutes and acting out sexually as a single guy and Inside Out came out, right before that book came out, I would have my quiet time and I'd go, Lord, why doesn't this truth and what I hear in church and what I'm memorizing, why doesn't that touch my heart? You've got to give me something more than this. And then the book came out and I started to go, oh my gosh, this is addressing these spiritual thirsts and longings and putting words to it. And you know what happened? Everything I began to read in the scriptures started to burst like flowers where I'd go, oh my gosh, there's hunger, there's thirst. And of course, two of the most obvious ones, Jesus calls us to himself in John 7 on the last and greatest day of the feast. He gets up and says in a loud voice, 
and we skip over the very first word, if anyone is thirsty, come to me. And these streams of living water are going to flow. And I think the reason why most people don't experience much in the Christian life is because they're not thirsty, and they think that being thirsty and wanting and desiring is somehow unchristian and selfish because we're supposed to die to self, which, by the way, the Bible never says. It says die to your sinful nature. And in fact, Jesus says, hey, your thirst is good. The other big one is in Isaiah 55, where it's almost like a reflection when Jesus was saying what he was in in John 7. It's almost like he was referring to this, but it's absolutely beautiful because the prophet says, come all who are thirsty, come to the waters. And then it says, you who have no money, come and buy and eat the richest of fare. And from a literary perspective, it almost doesn't make sense, right? So you're thirsty, you're here in the desert, like you're going to die of dehydration, but you can come to my store and I've got everything you want. Only problem is we don't accept credit cards. We don't accept cash. We don't accept checks. We accept brokenness. We accept poverty. We accept only the acknowledgement that you can't pay. And then you don't just get water, you get Gatorade. We're going to replenish your electrolytes. We're going to put vitamins in you. And you're not just going to get bread. You're going to get the richest of fare. And you're going to get meat. And you're going to get vegetables. And suddenly, that invitation awakens inside of us, not just thirst, but a deeper thirst, where he's saying there is a richer fare. And the work of evangelism and discipleship is really to point people to the heart of God and to say that that always leads to a richer fare. So ultimately, what I would do is in all of these kinds of conversations and symbolic gestures to stop teaching doctrine for which there's a place and point people to a person, to point people to Jesus, to point people to the Trinity. And when you engage them in actual relationship with a person, things wake up. Because with everything I've said, if you think about a man who has no knowledge of his heart and no attachment to his emotions, and yet that same man falls in love, he's going to wake up and he'll feel feelings that are very biochemical. And a part of his heart from simply like an evolutionary perspective to procreate the species, will move toward that woman and she will respond. And that's the native tongue that comes out even there. You know what my struggle is? And I say this hopefully with no arrogance or pride. I'm a dude who loved Jesus and I couldn't stop paying women for sex. I'm a guy who loved God really with all my heart and was willing to do anything for him but I couldn't not be unfaithful to my wife and I couldn't not go numb myself with alcohol. And I feel like a guy that's been given the cure for cancer and nobody wants to talk about how they've got cancer until they break down or jump over the cliff or until their world crashes. And I just regularly pray. I said, Lord, you know, bring this out to the people that so desperately need it. And I travel around even two weeks ago at a major church with a major national platform. And it's so hard to get men to come to something because, ooh, if I show up for that, then that means I'm a pervert and I'm struggling with that. It's like we have to be euphemistic about it and talk about purity and sexual integrity. And then people roll their eyes. So I'm so, so, so grateful for this opportunity. And I'm so thankful for you too that are asking the questions 
having the conversations and providing language for us to become integrated. I think that this conversation is going to be pretty huge in reframing just the major category of being a sexual being for so many people. I do want to just point out a couple resources. If someone's listening to this podcast and they're just going, language for the soul? Yes, I want to keep going. And, you know, I'll throw out too and then ask if there are any others that you would sort of refer people to. But obviously the first one would be your book, Surfing for God. I think as a primer to the language of a person's own heart and how it is sort of enmeshed with their sexuality would be key. I think that here at Ransomed Heart, in fact, something like The Sacred Romance would be really good. Something like Waking the Dead for understanding how a person's heart operates. But where else would you send someone who is ready to pick up some more language in response to this conversation? Yeah, well, those are the first one I always send people to, especially when we do intensive counseling, is we can't do it all. And your dad actually said to me once, you have to, Michael, be comfortable with the partial. We're all given a sliver. And uh, at this stage, my ministry is not to, to have a wide-ranging you know, catalog of resources. We have some. However, Ransom Park, number one, Allender Center, number two, you know, the conversations that Dan is having, not just around sexuality, but around trauma, transformation, growth. I love Peter Scazzaro's Emotionally Healthy Leader podcast. And then I have a podcast at restoringthesoul.com called Restoring the Soul. And at this point, the 55 episodes have been including Craig and John, but Peter Scazzaro, Dallas Willard. And, and basically my podcast is people that I read or have heard talk or people that have touched my life, musicians, poets, theologians, philosophers, and everything in between. I, I like to have conversations with them. And so all of that is around this idea of who is God and who are we and how do we bridge that gap? And I think that that would be a very helpful resource for people. I think starting with those would just be a, a great point of, of jumping off. Yep, that's killer. Michael, thank you for giving us some of your time today. It's, it's been a joy to get to talk about this. And I honestly have gotten so pumped and also lost track of future questions because I've just enjoyed listening to what you've brought. So thank you. You're welcome, Sam and Blaine. Joyful for me too. Good to be with you guys. Guys, thanks for listening. I just kind of want to say, right? What did we say? Right. Right? major category adjustment. So good. Want to kick you guys to Michael Cusick's uh, website. It's got a blog, got a podcast, restoringthesoul.com. Want to remind you that we have our own website. Antonsmagazine.com. The uh, the winter issue's out a couple weeks ago. So if you guys haven't checked it out, head on over there. And hopefully if you haven't, you'll be glad to know that you're not that many weeks away from the spring issue. So thanks for tuning in. We'll be back next week with another episode of the Ensigns Podcast. Until then... <laughs>